0: Lord, who is our Chief, with the great love and grace He has shown.
1: Noel Black, the Karen Discipleship Administrative Assistant here at Newcastle Bible Church. I also participate in our life group, our women's Bible study, um, and biblical counseling, along with my husband, and also in taking meals uh, sometimes to people who aren't feeling well. Um, and this is my husband, Norman.
2: Welcome to Newcastle Bible Church. If you're visiting today, we'd like to say hello and if you would stop at the north commons desk out front we have a gift for you and there's people there that will answer your questions about our church
1: and just so that we know that you were here please fill out the check-in card located in your worship folder and when you leave today you can drop them in the tables at both entrances or easier yet you can get online to an app called the church center and fill it out there
2: Again, welcome to Newcastle Bible Church.
1: We hope you enjoy your day.
3: Well, hello, Newcastle Bible Church. Pastor Scott here with Bethany Scruggs. And we're here to share a little bit more with you about our Joy Club ministry at Newcastle Bible Church. So, Bethany, what is our Joy Club ministry? And can you share why we're so excited about it?
1: Sure. So, Joy Club is um, a ministry for students who may have some special needs and we, um, we come alongside them and support them with a mentor or a buddy to be able to go to Sunday school and for their parents to be able to enjoy fellowship at church.
3: Yeah, and so you might have been shared a little bit there, but like why is this so strategic and so important for uh, families who may be in a situation like this?
1: Yeah, so a lot of the parents and the students that I've worked with, um, they don't go to church because it's a lot, and it's, it can be a lot um, to walk into a place and ask for some of the different supports that they might need. Um, so we don't want that to be a reason that people don't come. Mm-hmm. So we want people to feel welcome and know that you know we're here to have that conversation That's to help
3: great. them. So what we think about this, this seems Kind of like it could be intimidating for folks so what does it look like to be a volunteer in our ministry like what kind of qualifications do you need to have do you need uh, any special requirements uh, what are we looking for in volunteers sure.
1: so while um, being a special ed teacher is one of my passions it's absolutely not a requirement um, you just need a willing heart and a willingness to meet kids where they are and build a relationship with their families so whether you are in high school or whether you are in, you know, the Young at Heart Club,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. we would love to have you join us. Um, we pair people up so no one ever feels like they're um, by themselves mm-hmm. and we usually pair up um, someone new with someone who has been working with that child and their family so mm-hmm. they can kind of build a bridge and be that relationship and then um, we can move forward from there.
3: Now are these, uh, now is this ministry actually taking place in a toned spot or is this actually, where is this taking place on a Sunday morning?
1: It's a great question. So the Joy Club is under the umbrella of our children's ministry. So Joy Club takes place during the Sunday school hour and then during second service in children's
3: church. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. So how are we gonna be, I mean, so people, again, they don't have maybe some of the background of this, but uh, what supports do we have in place to help just train and equip them right now? What what does that look like?
1: Sure, so if you're um, interested in joining us, we would probably sit down and chat and talk a little bit about what some of your strengths are, what you're comfortable, or what you're worried about, mm-hmm. and um, we would help you become um, just acquainted with one of our kiddos that, that we get to serve, and we would, you know, some of our kids have a little bag of tricks that I might give you <laughs> that's helpful, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, we would just come alongside and serve with you mm-hmm. and help you build a relationship with that family and to a where you're comfortable.
3: That's awesome. Yeah. So, for anybody who might be interested uh, or has some questions want will learn some wants to learn more about joy club who should they be reaching out to and asking questions sure
1: so um sharon carrie pastor scott um carrie not myself mm-hmm. um, my husband eric jamie hill mm-hmm. um yeah oh, All of us, cool.
3: any, of yeah. us can, any of us can talk to you. yeah we'd love to just share more answer any questions that you have because we're, I mean, again, we've really worked over the last couple of years to put the foundation in place here, but now we're ready and very excited to try to build this up, but it requires a team of people to make it work. So um, we're praying right now in Newcastle that the Lord would be just stirring in your hearts to, to maybe call you to this particular ministry. And I know we have seen a lot of joy come out of it, and we're looking forward to seeing what the Lord will do through it here in the coming years.
4: Our Joy Club ministry is a wonderful opportunity to draw people in who struggle to get to church because of special and atypical dif- circumstances that they face in their lives. And Jesus Himself made known His love to those categories of people who are most overlooked in society. He ministered to those who are infirmed, who are sick. He ministered to children. And we ought to exhibit that same heart in our church as well. And what a privilege it is to be able to have a ministry that meets kids with special needs right where they're at and helps their parents so that they can come to church and take in God's word and receive the gospel. But this ministry can't just be on the shoulders of a few. We need some help. We need volunteers. And you heard from the video, you don't have to have any special qualifications other than the love of Christ in your heart. So we would encourage you all to think about and pray about joining in and helping us serve in that ministry so that we can be a beacon of hope to those who are really struggling. Well, we're really glad, as the videos have said, that you're all here with us this morning to worship. There's no greater place to be than right here with y'all. But before we continue singing, would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Jesus, we are just amazed And in awe of the fact that you have saved us sinners once and for all through your death on the cross. One time payment for all of our sins. There is no more payment necessary. The guilt that we had, you took upon yourself. The shame that we had, you took upon yourself. Though our sins were as scarlet, you have washed them whiter than snow. You have made us righteous. You have given us an alien righteousness that was not our own because you gave it to us. You have taken our sins away. You have expunged the record. And now we have reconciliation. We have peace with God. And we get to reap the eternal benefits of that, Lord. That We have eternal life now and we will get to have it in greater fullness in heaven. We will get to be with you, see you as you are for all eternity. And Lord, we long for that day. We ask you to come quickly. But I pray that our, our praise this morning would come from our hearts, that it wouldn't just be uh, a rote uh, muscle memory or a traditional thing that we do, but that we'd be really singing because in our minds, in our hearts, we're thinking about the treasure that we have in you. And we also just pray while it's on our minds, Lord, we just pray that you would bring about volunteers for the Joy Club ministry so that we can minister for your glory. Please provide. You are the only one. You are the one who can make it happen. You are the one who can do works in people's hearts. And you are the one who is building your church. So we lean wholly uh, upon you, Lord. We ask for your blessing over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the song we're about to sing is based on Psalm 145. So appropriately, I'll read from it. In verse 1, it says, I will extol you my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Would you please stand with us as we sing that truth to the Lord this morning?
0: Bye.
5: Good morning. Welcome to Newcastle. Good to see you all this morning. Um, Grateful as we look forward to here to a new year, sitting here at the beginning of 2023. Uh, God's given us so much here at at Newcastle in this community of of believers. It's exciting to think about what he's going to do this year, what he's going to do in in each of us and in us as a group. So I'm excited to be able to share that with you. Uh, Looking forward to it. So at this point, we'll dismiss uh, children's church ages three to kindergarten. Any ch- children that want to are dismissed to go upstairs, we'll uh, have some teachers up there that are ready for the kids to, to teach them in a little more uh, age-appropriate way. Everybody enjoy their Sunday here. So if you would, bow your heads, please. Father, Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You're from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And Father, we are grateful this morning that you are a God like that. That you are a God who has established this world. You've created it with a word. You command it with a word. It will not be moved unless you move it. And yet you're a God who wants to know each one of us. You look down on us, a a people, a fallen people on a fallen world, and you care. You love us in a way that you desire for us to know you, desire to redeem us and sent Christ for that purpose. Father, what hope there is in that and a world that is entirely without it, that casts about for for anything to, to fill the void you provide real hope, real hope of redemption, that our lives can be given purpose. You've given us things to do, even here, even after you've redeemed us uh, from our sin. You place work in front of us, things to do, and then you, you empower us to go and do it. We're so grateful for the kind of God you are. So we have needs here at Newcastle. We bring them before you uh, this week medical needs. There's been some diagnoses, and we know there are treatments. Father, we pray. We know it's within your power to grant health, and so we pray for it. There's much work to be done in your kingdom, and so we pray that you would restore health to our folks here. We know there's eternal life to look forward to, but there's work to be done here, and so we pray if you would restore them to health, they will use their lives to to honor you and to do your work here. And so we ask you that. Pray for comfort for those who grieve. We know from your word that we're not those who who grieve without hope. We understand that that there is eternal life, but it's hard. It's hard when people are gone. And so I pray for comfort. I pray for your hand to be over those um, who weep for those who are gone. Pray, Father, you'd give us courage and perseverance. It's the beginning of a new year as we think about uh, the things we'd like to do and the things that you have to do in this world. And as we talk about Joy Club, there's many opportunities for people to be involved. I pray that you would help us to stand up to the task to be a people with an eye on this world of what you're doing and a desire to be involved with it. There's an amazing thing that you've chosen us to do your work here. So we pray that, that you would lift us up and encourage us in that. I pray for Pastor Josh today as he teaches us from Ephesians. It's been a sweet book as we move here to the end of it. So I pray for open hearts, for the spirit to be strong in us. Help us to be uh, learners of your word and learners of you, of, of the attributes of you. So Father, our, our partner church today is Peak and Bible. We're so thankful for them. I pray for your blessing on them today, on the Pastor Chad as they worship, that you prosper their ministry and their community as they love God and they love others. They shine your light to the, the folks around them. We're thankful for their partnership in uh, biblical counseling ministry. I pray that you continue to prosper that, uh, press that deep into, into people's lives. Pray for the elders there as they shepherd Give them strength and bear them up. Our GO partner this week is Gabby and Mateo. Pray for their health, for your protection and grace as they begin a a new year of ministry there. Pray that your love would would energize them, that it be the, the source of their strength, the source of their ministry. For the families and women that they serve there, coming through the holiday season can be hard and and painful. So I pray for your provision, for your protection for them, that they'd experience your love and care and healing, things that, that this world can't provide them. Pray that you'd open their eyes to it. Mentioned that many of the youth there are at key transition points. No decisions are, can be challenging and overwhelming. And so I pray they'd be attentive to your leading and that in your sovereignty, you would place them just exactly where they need to be. And finally, they pray for God's hope to be their light and strength. Pray that we'd all be able to look back and rejoice for what God is forming in us. It's such a sweet thought, and I pray it for all of us here. It's easy to look back on challenging times with regret, and I pray that you'd help us to see that you are redeeming it, you've promised it in your word that you will. And I pray that you'd help us to look back and see the places that you're changing us and making a people, uh, making a people for yourself to do your work here and to bring glory to you. So finally, we acknowledge our dependence on you. We have no ability to do any of these things on our own, nothing of eternal value uh, without your provision for us. So we pray for it and we thank you in advance because we know you're a promise-keeping God, who ask this prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
4: As we reflect on how great our God is, we think about all the wondrous acts and things he has done, his deeds. We also reflect on his character as we just got done singing about how holy he is, only a holy God. And this next song we're about to sing also reminds us of God's holiness. In Isaiah 6, the cherubim said, holy, holy, holy talking about God's attribute of holiness in the superlative. No other attribute is talked about that way in the Bible. And it's not because His holiness is more important than His other attributes. It's just to say, when they say it three times, to say He is the most holy. And so to help us continue to meditate on that and worship God for that, we've resurrected a song that hasn't been sung here in a while, but will still, I believe, be familiar to you. So it might be new to some, but it might be uh, an old familiar one. So would you please stand as we sing Revelation song?
6: good morning, church. It's good to see you today. A pleasure to be here. And I'm thankful that each and every one of you were able to join us today. So great job on the worship there. Today, we're going to be back in Ephesians chapter six. We've got the finish line right in front of us in just a couple weeks right here. So we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 17 today. If you don't have your Bible, feel free to raise your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to give you one to use and you you can keep it or return it after the service. So, while you're turning there to Ephesians chapter 6, well, again, looking at verses 14 to 17, just a little context of where we've been. Um, Pastor Kevin started this section on spiritual warfare a few weeks ago, and then we had the holidays, so we're picking right back up in the middle of it there. It's good to remember that even though Jesus has won the victory, even though Satan has been defeated, there's still battles to be fought. There's still a skirmish is going on. So God doesn't simply save us and uh, then just put us on a beach somewhere where it's nice and easy and we can kick back in our easy chair and watch the tide go by. No, we're called to be right in the middle of the fight as we'll see today. And even in the middle of this fight, uh, Satan does not discriminate. Satan goes after everybody. So anybody that he can attack, anybody that he can land his blows on, um, he's always willing to do that. And he's always trying to do that. And even pastors can come under attack. Even shepherds of God's people can, can be hit with some blows and, and faced with a lot of spiritual warfare right here. And so we don't want to forget that This fight um, against Satan is a community project. So God calls us into community with one another. If you remember, he's given us three different areas of help in. He's given us his word, which Pastor Kevin looked at last week. He's given us his spirit, and he's given us God's people. And all three of those are necessary in this spiritual battle. And so when we recognize that somebody is hit, somebody is struggling in some ways, what do we do as a church? We come alongside of them to encourage them, to help them uh, get back in the fight again. And lately, uh, the elders have recognized that um, Pastor Kevin has been attacked strongly from Satan and has um, just been in a place where uh, he needs some time to take a spiritual, uh, spiritual retreat and become refreshed both physically and spiritually. And so we've asked him to take the next two weeks just to um, take take off and disconnect from all technology, so he won't be having email or text messaging. If you send any of those to him, it'll go to Never Never Land. Won't get to him. So we, as a church, want to come alongside of him and his family during this time to help encourage and love them, so that he can get back uh, where the Lord would have him to be, back in the fight, right there. So, how do you do this? How can you encourage? Kevin and the family, and two different areas. So first is praying for them. So specifically praying that Pastor Kevin will be refreshed and he will be strengthened in his spiritual retreat. So you can pray for that. Pray that uh, any attacks of Satan on his family will be thwarted. So really to help the family out, we really recommend you don't just go up to them and say, hey, how you doing? And start prying and what can I pray for? We're telling you what to pray Pray for his refreshment and encouragement in the Lord and that Satan's attacks will be thwarted. And just let them know that you love them and leave it at that. That's the best way at this moment to help them in that. And secondly, refuse to let Satan abide. So if we give Satan a foothold, if we give him a place to stay, he really can cause a lot of problems in God's redemptive community. So we recognize that Ephesians points out that this community should be a place where people can be honest, where people can come forth and receive love and encouragement and help in their struggles. And so we give Satan uh, a place to stay if we allow slander, if we allow gossip, and if we allow meddling to really take place. So we don't want to do that. So will you join me now to, pay, to pray for Pastor Kevin and his family? Dear Heavenly Father, we come unto you this morning. We recognize that all of us are weak in this spiritual fight. We recognize that at any moment. Any one of us in this room could be attacked by Satan, and none of us have the resources and strength on our own to be able to stand up, but we're thankful for Jesus Christ, as we'll see today, who has done all that for us and gives us his power and his help. And so now we pray for our beloved brother, Kevin. We pray that you will encourage him, that you will refresh him in this time away, restore to him that joy, restore to him that health. I pray that you will walk beside his family through this. Let them know that they are loved and cared for. And I pray, Father, that you will beat back any attacks that Satan would have to try to uh, create damage or havoc. Help us now as we go to your word and dive into the weapons of the the armor. Lord, I pray that you will make application to our lives and that we can come away with a, a greater love for you and a greater understanding of how we can carry these out in our lives. So please open our hearts to this. Thank you again, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you're now with me in Ephesians chapter 6, please stand in the reading of God's Word. We're going to be taking a look at verses 14 to 17. The context to this, of course, is verses 10 to 20, but I'll be focused on verses 14 to 17 today. Stand, for, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of roller coasters. I don't particularly like the feeling of going way, way high up and knowing what's about to come when you have this rapid descent and your stomach feels like it's floating and you got to catch it and then you get off of these things and I just want to fall over and be done with the whole thing after that. But some people really love that kind of a thing and I sort of wonder if maybe the way we approach our spiritual walk isn't like a roller coaster. If maybe some of the time we're riding very, very high, confident that we have on God's word, uh, God's armor, and if other days we're not very, very low as we fall down and maybe give in to some sin and wonder, did I forget to put on the armor today? Maybe that sort of describes our Christian walk or our Christian experience. So this section on the armor of the Lord can be one of the most confusing and challenging, I think, that we find in Scripture. I think many of us come with the understanding that God's armor is like the electricity in this room. Uh, God is the power plant. God is supplying all the power and it's sort of flowing through all the wires. And it's our job to go and to plug in and tap into that. And God's kind of up in heaven uh, just watching and and wringing his hands and hoping that we're going to get it right, that we'll go to that outlet and plug in and get connected. And then some of us are wondering, do I have a wire loose? Is there a short or something? Because it doesn't seem like I'm accessing all that power that's available to me. Is that you? Maybe that kind of that your experience of the weapons of warfare that we see right here. So maybe you're just very unclear about how all these pieces function today. Maybe you're overwhelmed, just wondering if you really have been doing the whole armor thing right. You're not sure that you're good enough for it all. On the other hand, maybe you've Maybe you're thinking, I'm doing this pretty well. I'm looking, kind of looking down at all those loser Christians who need to get their act together to get their armor on. I don't know what the problem with them is, but I've got it pretty good here. So we kind of wonder, is the armor of the Lord, Is that, does that take some kind of special power or skill to, to be able to use? Are you going to teach me that today, Josh, like with the blowtorch? Are you going to teach me some kind of technique to uh, use the weapons of the warfare well? Well, no, no one. yes. So hang on and you'll see. Um, there's not a special technique or skill that, that is what this is about. Um, our main point today is the main point that's been carried throughout this whole series here on spiritual warfare. And that's this, that we can only stand against evil by God's strength. We can only stand against evil by God's strength. And so Christians are really called to stand firm in battle. That's the point that we want to see today. And here's my hope. My hope is that I don't want you to focus on the wrong thing. It's easy to focus on the breastplate and the belt and the shield and the sword and all these pieces of the armor, but that's not where our focus should be. Our focus should be not on the metaphor, but on what that points to, the truth, the righteousness, so on and so forth. So what we're going to see when it comes to this armor is that first, Jesus wore them. Jesus wore them first. Why? Because we couldn't. He wore them and was successful because we could not be. And then secondly, we want to see that wearing the armor changes the way you live. It does make a difference when we have on the truth of Jesus in our practice. To speak truth, to live in truth, to know truth. The same way with righteousness, the same way with faith, the same way with all of these different things. So let's take a look at them now, uh, starting in verse 14. I'd encourage you to have your Bibles out throughout the course of this. Um, We're mainly focused on these several verses right here, 14 to 17. And I'm going to be making references back to those verses. I may not specifically say, hey, look at verse 14, look at verse 15. But everything I'm talking about is going to point back to these verses. So keep your Bibles open as we do this. But starting in verse 14, Paul says, stand therefore. Right? So the first thing we want to see is Christians, God calls you to stand firm in preparation for the battle. So Christians, God calls you to stand firm in preparation for the battle. So verse 14 is reiterating, it's taking us back to what Paul has previously said in verse 13, which is getting us ready for the battle, a call to preparation. We're going to have far less success in spiritual warfare if we begin preparing when the battle is already waging upon us. So I believe that the best time to prepare for spiritual warfare is not when you're in the heat of it, not when you're being pummeled by Satan, not when you have these arrows like zinging at you every single way, but maybe when there's a lull. So we know that the battle is always going. There's never a time when it's not, but there are times in which the battle is more intense than at other times. And the less intensive times are the best times to really learn and prepare for the more intensive times. The same is true with suffering. The best time to learn about suffering and be ready for it is not when you're in the hospital, not when you have a loved one in the hospital, um, but before that. If you think about a storm, if you knew a hurricane was coming on your house, the best time to prepare, to prepare would be days, weeks ahead of that, and not when it's there blowing and now you're trying to do it. Okay? So that's what we want to see. The best preparation starts before it, not in the heat of it. So the goal of preparing is to be able to stand firm in God's power. Why should we prepare? So we can stand firm in God's power. It not only keeps us from falling into sin, but it also helps bring deliverance to those who are captured by Satan. So don't think of this section today as just about me. Think of it in terms of how does this also extend to other people who are currently captured by Satan? So the question may come, well, how do you prepare? How do you prepare? So I'm not going to get to that right now. I'll actually circle around to that at the very end. So stay tuned for that. First, though, um, or second, I should say, Christian, we are to stand firm because our standing displays the power of God. So Christian, stand firm because our standing displays the power of God. In the context of these verses right here, that's really what flows out of it is our standing firm displays God's power. So knowing that we are called to stand is important, but knowing why we should stand is also important. So our standing displays the power of God. We don't stand fast or stand firm because we're good enough, because we're strong enough. No, we don't stand fast or stand firm because we have the swagger to make hell tremble. No, that's not it either. No, we stand fast because Jesus has won the victory for us, and all the glory goes back to God. We stand fast because God's strength is now manifest through our weaknesses. We stand fast because God is working in us. So Paul has already said in the beginning of this letter that God is working out His purposes in us to the praise and glory of God, to the praise of His will. He's declared that God has made Christians His workmanship, Prepared for good works. So, Paul is, has prayed already that the Ephesians know the greatness of his power, of God's power toward them. And in chapter 3, Paul prays that they will comprehend the incomprehensible, the power and love of Christ for them. So, what's all that mean? It means that God hasn't left it up to us to determine whether or not his purposes will succeed. God's not in heaven saying, I hope they can pull it together. I hope that my plan gets carried out because of what they do. No, God's purposes will succeed. His power is at work within us to guarantee that his purposes will come to pass and that Christians will pre- be presented holy and blameless before God. So at the final day, Christians will be presented holy and blameless before God. It's not a, not a hypothetical thing where God's hoping that we can do it. It will happen. God will accomplish this. So what's all that got to do with you then? Well, it means that God's power is already at work within you. It has begun at salvation so that you'll be able to resist Satan and sin. So it's not a hypothetical power, something that if you choose not to tap into it, then it's not going to work. No, God's power is at work within you. Um, and I don't want us to understand the armor of God as just something else we need to do, like a set of virtues that we should strive for uh, or a more higher calling. Uh, we don't want to think about it as, again, another, another list of things that we have to do in order to uh, please God or to earn more favor with God. Like, I need to be more truthful today. I need to be more righteous today. I need to have more faith today. The armor of God is not something we earn or achieve Instead, we should think of the armor of God as a reference to putting on Christ. A reference to putting on Christ. So when Paul speaks of the armor of the Lord, he's teaching us about our identification with Jesus. So he's using the metaphor of an armor and putting that on. And he's giving us an example, a, a, way, to, a way to understand what it looks like to put on Christ. So there are a number of other passages in the Bible, including Ephesians, that talk about that, put on Christ, put on Christ, such as uh, Romans 13, 12 to 14, um, Galatians 3, 27. Um, and so the question will be, well, what's that look like to put on Jesus? So Paul uses the metaphor of the armor to help us understand what that looks like. So another way to say this is that God's power comes to us through Jesus because we are united with Jesus. If we weren't united with Jesus, then we wouldn't receive God's blessings. So when we talk about union with Christ, you'll notice in Ephesians all over the place, it's talking about in him, in him, in him. It's repeated frequently throughout that. That's another way to talk about our union with Christ. So what that means is that we are really and truly, spiritually and bodily, joined to the crucified, resurrected, incarnate person of Christ. And it's far, far better to be united with Christ than to simply have access to the benefits that Christ offers. Let me use an example of that. It's far better to be married to a person than simply to be in relationship with them. So if you're just dating, um, courting, Yes, you have a relationship. Yes, there are you know, benefits with that. But there's a lot of things that aren't true yet. You don't have access to their bank account. Um, you have a different last name. You're living in a different place. You know, there's things not true yet. But when you're married to that person, things change, right? Because you're in union with them. Now you have uh, the benefits of being in that union. There's a closeness and difference from being united with them that you didn't have before. And that's the same way with Jesus Christ. So again, I don't want you to think that the armor of God is something that's out of reach for you. Like God is just kind of holding it out there. Like, jump a little bit higher, try a little bit harder, and then maybe you can get the armor of God. No, it's not like that. I don't want you to think either that it's something that you just decide you get to use if you feel like it's going to help you or not. Kind of like a seatbelt. if I feel like it, I'll use it. If not, I won't. It's not like that either. No, this armor is what Jesus has worn on your behalf to defeat Satan Jesus gave his life so that you could be victorious in your fight uh, against all those sins that plague you this week. So I think this perspective changes how we view spiritual warfare and our fight against sin. It changes it. Why? Because it's Jesus who who won the victory, not you. It's Jesus who obtained our salvation and who is working to make us more like him. It's Jesus working in you to, to do what he wants. To make you as pure as he wants. And to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes in you. And so because of Christ's victory, you can stand firm in victory. Because he has achieved it for you. I wonder here today if anybody has given up hope. Given up hope that you will ever overcome a certain sin in your life. Maybe given up hope that your future will be any different maybe given up hope that you will ever make it out of this season of suffering that you're in? Well, the victory of Jesus over Satan and his evil powers ensures that Satan won't have the final say. Your sin and my sin will not have the final say. Jesus has the final say. Now, yes, it's true that in this spiritual battle, we fight hard. It's a battle. We wrestle We get dirty, we bleed, we're engaged with Satan in a life-and-death struggle, we cry over the pain from his blows, we groan from the hits that we take, but we keep trying because Jesus has won and covers us in his armor. But I wonder how many of you today would say, then why doesn't it feel like that? If those things are true, why does it seem like I'm not victorious in my fight against sin? Why does it seem like defeat always has the upper hand? Why doesn't God just change everything to make me victorious in every single way? Well, God could do that, but he chooses not to. So we need this reminder. God wants us to see that we have no strength in and of ourselves. God wants us to see that unless he gives us the power to stand, we won't be able to. We need the reminder time after time that Satan is superior to us. And that the Holy Spirit is working within us even in the midst of our failures. And I believe that the school of failure is the best place to learn about our need to depend on God and how strong Satan is. And see, I failed when I made this because I said the school of suffering. It's pretty much the same principle, but I think school of failure better sums it up. Failure is the best place to learn about our need to depend on God and how strong Satan is. I mean, think about it this way. If you never had a sin that you struggled with, If you never had something in your life, a challenge in your life that seemed above you, then would you really depend on God? Would you really see his deep need for him to come through and deliver you? Probably not. So third, Christian, we stand firm by putting on the armor of God. Christians, we stand firm by putting on the armor of God. So we're going to be taking a look now here at the various pieces of the armor Uh, in verses 14 to 17, and remembering that call, this answers the question of how do you stand firm? You stand firm by putting on the armor of God. Again, remember this is God's armor. His people are dressed in that armor, and so we stand firm by dressing in that way. So the first piece we're going to look at is truth. So we stand against the powers of darkness with Christ's truth. So Paul uh, first goes to truth. He uses the language of a belt to describe that truth. This imagery comes from Isaiah 11.5. In Isaiah 11.5, the messianic warrior girds himself with a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. Now, you're probably not at this place right now because we just started the new year. But suppose you had a New Year's resolution to lose weight. At some point, maybe your pants would be a little baggy. And what would you do? you would put on a belt, right? Why not? Otherwise, they're going to fall down and trip you, and you'd be really awkward. Um, so we, we put that belt on to gird our, gird our pants up. Well, the community of God that we've been talking about here in Ephesians is a community of truth. In this community, believers speak the truth with one another, 415. In this community, we have believed God's truth, the truth that is in Jesus, Ephesians 421. So God provides His truth to the church so that Christians know where they're going, who they belong to, what's right and what's wrong, what priorities and values matter, who they, who they are living for, what God expects from them, and God's ultimate destination for them. If God hadn't given us truth, we would have no clue about any of those things and be lost as a, a cat in a snowstorm or whatever analogy you want, you want to use for that. So Jesus is truth. Truth pushes back against the darkness of Satan's lies. Satan, remember, has no truth in himself. His strategy is to attack and to question God at every twist and turn. Does God really mean what he said? Does God really know what's best? Is God's way really the right way? We live in a world where the whole idea of truth is questioned. Pilate said that to Jesus. What is truth? And through the strategy of Satan, the world questions truth on every level. And it won't take you long for you to run into somebody who questions truth. Maybe you'll run into somebody who says, I don't understand why you say that marriage is only supposed to be between a man and a woman. Who are you to say that it can't be between whoever they want? Who are you to determine what truth is? What's it matter what truth is as long as we're sincere in what we believe? Well, the Bible says that it does matter what we believe. Paul has already said that the truth is in Jesus. The truth is not in Washington, D.C. The truth is not in Hollywood. The truth is not on your TV or in your newspaper. No, the truth is in Jesus Christ. Now, truth doesn't do you any good against Satan's attacks if you don't have it on, just like a belt does no good if it's still at the store and not on your pants. So believers must put off lying. They must put off off falsehood, and they must put on truth-telling. Ephesians 4.25, so if you're dishonest or practice falsehood, you'll get tripped up in your sin and open yourself up to Satan's attacks. So God's community is meant to be a place of truth where members believe the truth and practice the truth. If we're ignorant of the truth, we won't be as effective either. Remember how Satan convinced Adam and Eve to sin? He challenged God's truth. He got them through a lie. So Jesus wore the belt of truth for us. This belt we see in Isaiah eleven five. And Jesus, who is true and faithful, will undo the work of the liar, Satan. Through his ministry, Jesus often uses truth to defeat Satan. He counters the lies of Satan in the wilderness and responds with the truth of God. So remember, church, Jesus has won over the lies of Satan. The untrue things that Satan says about you have been defeated by the truth of Jesus. When you're faced with Satan's lies, lay hold of the truth that is in Christ. The second piece of armor that Paul mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. Again, it's not about the particular piece of armor, the breastplate. It's about what that is referring to, the righteousness. So Roman soldiers would wear a breastplate to protect the chest area. But Paul is referencing the messianic warrior back in Isaiah 59, 17, who puts on righteousness as a breastplate. Why does he put on righteousness? To fight against unrighteousness and to redeem his people from their sins. Now, you may be wondering, you used a big word right there, righteousness. What does that word mean? Well, righteousness is an attribute of God. It means that God acts in right ways or ways that are consistent with his character. So God is right. God can only do what is right. When God brings righteousness to his people, that's another way of saying that God brings salvation to his people. So the gift of righteousness means that God has taken away the guilt of his people. He frees them from their sin by Christ's blood, brings them into right relationship with God as his friends, and allows them to experience a new status as sons and daughters. Now, Satan's strategy is to whisper lies about our status before God, like this loser yeah you loser that's your name isn't it i know what you did this week i saw that you're here goody two shoes in church everybody thinking you're so good i know the truth about you how could god ever love you all those mistakes you make you're such a disappointment to him he won't ever be pleased with your weak efforts Just give up, loser. Are you familiar with any of those? Any experience with that? That's how Satan likes to attack us, right? With those kind of accusations, with those kind of whispers, with those kind of lies. Some of you have had people in your life who are constantly disappointed with you. Your efforts never seem to be good enough for them. And Satan's strategy is the same, to convince us that God is constantly disappointed in us, that we're never good enough for him. We have to work so much harder for God to approve of us and to love us. Well, I'm glad God doesn't operate like that. I'm glad God is not judging me based on my performance alone. He's looking at Christ's righteousness on my behalf. You know, my own works, my good works wouldn't stand a chance. Did you know that if you just sinned one time a year, in the average lifetime, say 70 years, you would sin about 26,000 times. Don't know about you, but if I could get down to... And that's just one sin a day, okay? Uh, I'd like to... Boy, that would be something great to aim for, right? But just on the low end of it, if you just sinned 26,000 times before a holy God who is perfect... What might he say about that? And we have the nerve to think that our own righteousness is good enough in some way for God, that we've tried hard enough, that we've done enough good. That's a lot of good you would have to do to overcome all those things, way more than we could ever possibly do. So God knows that our own righteousness doesn't have a chance. And in Isaiah, God puts his own armor on to save his people. Israel's righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. So God must supply the righteousness. God's righteousness comes to his people through his suffering servant who lays down his life. And in this great exchange, Jesus takes our sin and guilt and gives us his righteousness. It's not even close to a fair deal, is it? Well, God's armor of righteousness enables you to stand against Satan Because no matter how bad you are or what things Satan accuses you of, God still delivers. There's not a person in deep enough sin that God can't rescue and deliver. God's righteousness reminds us that he loves us when we were still his enemy, Romans 5, and loves us more now that I am his child. His righteousness demonstrates to me that even in my greatest failures, God will not forsake and abandon me. Now, God's armor of righteousness does motivate us not to take our sin lightly. It motivates us to live in right ways, to put off the old self and to put on the new. Wearing his armor of righteousness means that we cannot continue in evil. It's hard to have assurance of salvation if you're in an ongoing, persistent, unrepentant sin. So God's righteousness is not only put on our account, but God is also making us righteous. Day by, deg- day by day, degree by degree. So how can we use the armor of righteousness against Satan? Well, every time that you think that you're doing well and that you're pretty strong, watch out. That's a sign that you're wearing your own armor and not Christ's armor. But on the other hand, every time that you're stuck in self-pity and shame, watch out. That means you're also looking at your own armor instead of Christ's armor. So refocus on the Lord Remember his righteousness on your behalf. Right living should be a mark of our lives if we have on the armor of righteousness. But as we've said, this righteousness is not our own. Now the third piece of the armor is the shoes. The shoes are the proclamation of the gospel of peace. So we stand against the power of darkness with Christ's shoes. So here Paul points to an overlooked aspect of the armor, the shoes. In our time, shoes tend to be used more as a fashion statement than they do as function. But in Paul's time, when shoes were your means of transportation, they became pretty important. Now, Paul's background is Isaiah 52.7. And here he says, here Isaiah says... How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Other than the Ephesian passage, this other passage in Isaiah is the only place in Scripture where feet, good news, and peace all are related together right there. Now, maybe there's been a time in your life where you were in a really hard spot when you were overwhelmed, when you felt there was no way out, when you believed that the only deliverance would be from God. And do you remember when that deliverance came and, you, and, and God stepped in and rescued you and brought you out of it? What did you do? You were ready to tell everybody you knew about that kind of deliverance. Well, likewise, Paul sees the believers here at Ephesus who were one time trapped by the enemy, now proclaiming the good news of deliverance to other people. Why do you need good shoes? You need good shoes to, to carry, to travel, to share this gospel of peace. The role of a herald, which is our role, is to get the good news of the gospel out accurately and to get it out to other people. So again, we typically think of the shoes as a defensive piece, like the belt and the armor. And they are defensive because we're standing in them. But the shoes are also offensive Um, For with them we extend, or we herald, the message of God's peace to the world. The message that God reigns, that he redeems people, and that the world will one day see the salvation of God. That's what we are heralding. The shoes enable us to stand and to advance against the the forces of darkness by proclaiming who reigns. I love that uh, Um, verse that was quoted, that scripture that was quoted today, that reminder of who reigns. Who does reign today? God reigns. This world is enslaved by idols. There's all kinds of messages about who reigns. It's good to remember that God reigns. Not Satan, not other people. God alone reigns. And Christians on the battlefront are proclaiming that message, God reigns. So standing in the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, we announce the peace that God gives. Nothing in this world, relationships, other people, uh, food, shopping, money, none of those things can give peace. Only God can. So as we stand in the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, we proclaim that God redeems people. Now, it's not good news if we were proclaiming that you have to first get your acts together in order for God to redeem you. That's not good news. And by redeem, I mean set free from the slavery to sin and the devil that we were in. It's not good news to proclaim a gospel that God loves good people. That's not good news. We proclaim a gospel that God loves wicked and sinful people, and he frees them. Now, that's good news. I wonder how many of you feel like failures when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of peace. How many of you have given up thinking that this evangelism is only for those with some kind of a special gift? What's good to be reminded that these shoes um, are a daily reminder that we stand firm and advance against Satan through the proclamation of the gospel, but we only do this by Christ's power. Jesus enables us in our feeble efforts to proclaim, and he allows the hard-hearted, he breaks down those barriers, he enables the hard-hearted, the stubborn, to hear and receive this truth. And the fact that peace is used in the context of a weapon is also ironic. The powers of darkness stir up people with hatred, with division, with conflict, with war. All of those are flesh and blood battles. The fact that peace is mentioned as part of the armor, reminds us that spiritual warfare in Christ's armor is the ultimate weapon against human warfare. Now the fourth piece of the armor that Paul mentions is faith, represented by a shield. The flaming darts or the flaming arrows represent the attacks by Satan in many forms against the Christian. So in ancient warfare, the shield was a very vital piece of the armor to protect them from swords, from spears, from arrows, from all that kind of stuff. In normal warfare, the shield would do a pretty good job at repelling those kind of attacks. But fiery arrows are another matter. Okay, So in a normal warfare, you have these shields. They typically got some leather on them. As long as the leather was wet, they would do a pretty good job at turning aside most of the fiery arrows. They wouldn't put them out, but they would turn them aside. But as the battle raged on and the leather dried out, eventually those arrows would begin to burn through that shield, leaving the soldier open then to attack. Now, how many of you would wanna be in a gunfight with a vest that only stopped some of the bullets? Any takers? How many of you would want to ride in a car where the brakes only worked some of the time? Any takers? Well, I don't think we want to be in a spiritual battle where we have a shield that only works some of the time, that only repels some of the arrows. No, we want a shield that extinguishes all of Satan's fiery arrows. And that's a supernatural shield who is Christ. And throughout the Bible, God refers to himself as a shield. Genesis 15.1, he tells Abraham, Fear not, Abram, I am a shield. Psalm 91 especially uses the metaphor of a shield with God. So in the time of difficulty and attack, God will protect. What is this shield? It's faith. Now, what's faith? People have a lot of misunderstandings about what faith is. Faith is not the belief in something that's not grounded in reality. Faith is not hoping in something with no basis at all to believe it. Faith is not a giant leap. It's not this feeling that something good is gonna happen. No, biblical faith is the assurance in a trustworthy and all-powerful God who gives good evidence of his power and trust. Now, faith itself is not the focus. Faith is what connects us to God's power and protection. I could have all the faith in the world that this very day, right after church, I could go outside in front of you all and go ice skating on the pond out there. I could have all the faith in the world that I could do that, but what would happen? You'd drive by me and wave to me floating in the pond, right? There's not any ice on it to support me. So it's not the faith, it's the, that, the itself that is the object, it's what the faith is leading us to. Faith is the means by which we are connected to, we are accessing God's power and protection. So how do you use faith as a shield? Well, remind yourself of the promises of God even in the darkest times. Pray with confidence, believing that God has all the strength and wisdom you need. Trust that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will act with his power to see you through the troubles that you face. Meditate on the love that God has for you demonstrated by the death of his son. What are some examples of these fiery arrows that we face? Well, these would include every kind of temptation, thoughts of doubt, despair, persecution, and false teaching. I've seen Satan's fiery arrows in particular in the lives of people And when it comes to the assurance of salvation, Satan loves to send those arrows in and get people all torn up about the guilt and the things that they've done wrong, even though they've confessed those and come to the Lord for forgiveness. Another common way that Satan sends those fiery arrows in is by telling people that failure is their first name. Hey, Mr. Failure. Hey, Mrs. Failure. And God's people can become deeply discouraged and even depressed if they allow Satan's lies to become their identity. So Christian, resist the flaming arrows of the enemy by God's power. Keep clinging to Jesus, knowing that he has gone before you and successfully defeated the forces of evil. The fifth piece of armor then is salvation, represented in terms of a helmet. So Paul again ties this section back to Isaiah 59, 17, where the divine warrior puts on the helmet of salvation to deliver his people. So Paul has been stressing throughout Ephesians that believers have been saved. He wants them to realize the present implications of this. You have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to God's kingdom. So when we get here to the end of the letter, Paul isn't now saying, oh, by the way, you need to be saved. That's not what he's saying when he's talking about salvation. No, he's reminding them to remember who they are. Remember what God has done on your behalf. Because they are in Christ or united with him, like we talked about earlier, they have been delivered from supernatural enemies. Now, it's very surprising and even scary when we consider how many people don't know why God should let them into heaven. When you ask them that question, why should God let you into heaven? Many people say, i would never thought about that. I have no idea. They spend more time picking out what they want to order at a drive through than thinking about where they'll spend eternity. But God doesn't want us to operate like that. When we talk about um, salvation as a helmet, we're not talking about a general hope that everything is going to somehow work out in the end. We're not banking on good works or efforts. The salvation we're talking about provides confidence In this fight against Satan, why? Because it's resting fully on Jesus and his work for us. Jesus wore the helmet of salvation for us, living a perfect and sinless life in our place. So the helmet of salvation protects us from doubt and despair. It gives us the most glorious news of all. But how often do we focus on the much smaller negative news that then shapes our day and hope? Let me give you an example of this. Imagine that after church, you got a phone call. Somebody bought you the house of your dreams, the house you've always wanted. Oh, so beautiful. And you can come over tomorrow morning and have it. It's all yours, free. And so Monday morning, get in your car, you're driving over there. And on the way there, your tire goes flat. And you pull up to this house, the house of your dreams. But where's your focus? I got a flat tire, my day is ruined. All you can think about is this flat tire and you miss out on the most glorious news of this beautiful dream home. How many of us do that in in our daily walk? How many of us lose sight that God, through this announcement of salvation, has given us the most glorious news of all and we get so caught up in these small little uh, tidbits of of lesser news and let those shape our day. So we don't wanna lose sight of heaven and the amount that we have been forgiven. So we stand then against the powers of darkness, also with Christ's sword. And that's the next piece of armor, the last one that we'll look at for today. You'll notice this piece of armor is both offensive and defensive. And when we think of sword fighting, we think of fighting that's up close and personal. Now over the years, the nature of war has changed to some degree. War today is fought more at a distance. We have laser-guided bombs, we have drones, we have airplanes. Um, Yes, there's still a place for hand-to-hand combat, but, you know, for a majority of it, you can fight it at a distance. But that wasn't the case for most of human history. For most of human history, you fought war up close and personal. You were down in the trenches. You were face-to-face with that guy with your sword, and you knew at the end of this, that only one of you was gonna make it out alive. Who was that gonna be? Well, I think we approach spiritual warfare in the same way. We prefer to operate at a distance. We prefer to operate like we order things online with just the click of a button. Just click my button and Jesus changes whatever part of me you know, needs changed. We're not as willing to get down and dirty. We're a little slower to hack away at our sin with the the Word of God. We prefer that we could just say a quick prayer and be done with it, but that's not the way it works. So Paul identifies the sword as the Word of God. It's empowered by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? It means that the Word of God is used in an offensive way, like a sword is used when the gospel is proclaimed. And then the Spirit is empowers God's word to be effective, to change hearts and lives, so that people act differently and believe differently. People are freed from the power of Satan through the proclamation of the gospel as the Holy Spirit works in their hearts to bring them to faith in Christ. So the sword functions as an offensive weapon to free people from the bondage to Satan, and it also functions as a defensive weapon to counter Satan's attacks. If you think about how Jesus used the Word of God in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 to fight Satan's temptations in the wilderness, we can see that applying Scripture to specific challenges and temptations is critical to fighting them off. So let's land the plane. What have we seen today? We've seen today that God's power and help is more than something we can just choose to tap into if we want, if we think it'll be useful. We've seen that spiritual warfare is not about developing some special hidden technique or skill. No, God is working within us. We are growing in awareness of what God has done for us. And we're seeing how this then applies to the way we live. So depending on God's power enables us to resist Satan's attacks and to stand firm. We've seen that none of us can stand the Christian life on our own. Next week, we're going to look at the greatest weapon that Christians have in the spiritual arsenal. But as we end, I'd like to end with a few suggestions to help you prepare for spiritual warfare. First, never lose sight of the beauty and majesty of God in your mind. Never lose sight of the beauty and majesty of God in your mind. The more of the beauty and majesty of God in your mind there is, the less room for Satan and his attacks there will be. Secondly, consider and know your own weaknesses. If you were Satan, where would you attack yourself? Hey, guess what? Satan's probably going to do that to you, right? If you know where your weak spot is, what do you think Satan's going to do? Probably attack you there. So knowing that is going to help you. Third, deal strongly with sin in your life. Don't play around with it. Don't let it grow. Deal strongly with it. And then last, run to Jesus quickly. Come to him quickly. Never let shame and guilt stop you. So let us end by going to the Lord in prayer, by running to Him and reminding ourselves that we need His power if we're going to make it in this spiritual fight. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for allowing us to come to You today. We thank You for the reminder through Your Word that we do not have the resources in ourselves to fight this spiritual fight against Satan and the forces of evil on our own. We aren't strong enough. No one in here can beat Satan themselves. Lord, we are so thankful that you have worn the armor for us. We are thankful this is not resting on us, for us to be good enough. But we're also thankful, Lord, that you help us in this fight and that your armor actually changes the way we live. So I pray today, Lord, for anyone leaving discouraged, anyone thinking that this spiritual fight is just hopeless, They're never going to make it through it. Satan's going to win. Lord, I pray that you will use this word to remind them of who has already won. And I pray you will use it in all of our lives to encourage and motivate us to live out your armor. And it's in your name we pray, amen.
4: Well, as Josh exhorted us that the key to surviving spiritual warfare is to never lose sight of Christ, to never lose sight of his glory 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us of that truth when it says that we are transformed from one degree to another as we behold the glory of Christ. And so we need to make sure that we treasure. In order to behold Him, we have to treasure Him. We have to see Him as valuable, as worthy. And so would you please stand as we sing a song and as you examine your heart to answer the question, is He worthy?
0: The world is broken Do Do you feel the shadows deepen Do Do you know that all the dark Won't stop the light from getting through Do Do you wish that you could see it all one word is anyone
6: He is worthy. Let us say our benediction with that in mind, that Jesus alone is worthy. Starting now with the uh, scripture, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed, and thank you again for today.